So hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Philippine and Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined by Dr. Gareth Owen, uh, an academic psychiatrist. But it's always far better for people to speak for themselves rather than uh, me to speak for them. So with that, in further ado, can I hand you over to Gareth uh, to introduce yourself, say a little bit about your background and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So, hi, Gareth. Hi, thanks, Alex. So, I'm, yes, I'm Gareth Owen. I'm a, a psychiatrist, uh, an academic psychiatrist, which means that I, I work at um, the University of King's College London, at the Institute of Psychiatry, for um, a lot of my time doing research and teaching. But I'm also a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS, and at the moment I work in liaison psychiatry, which means that I, I work at, uh, really in the interface between psychiatry and uh, the general hospital, so general medicine and surgery. And how often in your liaison job, how often are you called in on questions specifically about someone's capacity to sort of give us a flavour of, of, of the sort of circumstances you're called in on? Yeah, it's, I mean, in the general hospital, capacity assessments are really quite common. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. So the first reason I think is sort of cultural or legal, which is just that the, the, the legal framework in the general hospital um, tends to really, in, in, in most cases, be the Mental Capacity Act when there's a, a question about um, uh, decision-making and there's a question about a state of mind. Uh, whereas in the psychiatric hospital, of course, the legal framework tends to be much, much more the Mental Health Act and um, as you well know, that's a, a legal framework which isn't primarily based on the, on the, um, the concept or the construct of, of mental capacity. But I think the other reason it comes up in the general hospital is because, um, uh, you know, we're sort of realising now that in the general hospital, um, cognitive impairment is, is common. So that's partly because of an ageing population and age-related cognitive decline. Um, and it's also because I think the more we really think about questions of capacity in general, the more we find that actually in, um, in, hosp in acute hospitals, uh, illness really can impact on people's, um, people's decision-making. So we're sort of in a way, I think it's just increasingly becoming more, more aware of, um, of this as a uh, as this is a question. And so, I mean, being a stereotype, but occasionally stereotypes are stereotypes because they've got a kind of grain of truth in them, is that you're only called in when... You're, you're Sorry, my Siri is talking to me. Uh, you're only called in when um, someone says no. So there's a medical treatment that the, the medics want to provide, and they say no, and at that point people start going, oh, I'm not sure about capacity. Because if they'd simply said yes, everyone would have been happy, no need to trouble anyone. It's the yes. no which causes the problem. Is that, is that fair or entirely unfair? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that is the stereotype and there is uh, some truth in that. I mean, I think it's, uh, liaison psychiatrists are often getting called when there are uh, essentially disagreements between um, a patient in the treating team and so part of what one's doing I think oftentimes is, is negotiating or managing that disagreement um, rather than doing with, dealing with capacity 
um, per se. Uh, but I think on, on the more perhaps generous interpretation of why that happens is that these are welfare contexts. I mean, basically people are trying, to, doctors are trying to do things which they think are good or in the person's interests. And, when, and then when a disagreement arises, there is a uh, kind of welfare or a concern of a type. Um, so you can either sort of, <laughs> on a less generous interpretation, see this, this as the sort of overarching will of the, uh, of the doctor who thinks they know best, or on the, on the more charitable interpretation, you can see that there's just a welfare concern, basically. And capacity assessments generally get triggered by concern. That's, that's generally how they, how they start. Um, and in reality, it's a mix. It's a bit of a mix of the two, I think. I mean, I think it's fascinating that, I mean, raising a welfare concern, because one of the reasons you and I know each other is that we both work together on the mental health and justice project, which you lead, yeah. and I'm, I'm one of the academic management group for. And one of the work streams is on contested capacity assessment. Mm. And then one of the, one, uh, under that umbrella, we've done a, a lot of interviews with psychiatrists in England, Scotland, New Zealand, and also uh, lawyers and then judges in England. They're not yet written up, so we need to be a little careful about how broadly we talk about them. But one of the things which has really struck me in the interviews that I've done, but also the interview transcripts I've read, is how difficult it is in reality to disassociate the question of does this person have capacity to make this decision from what is the outcome if this person has capacity and doesn't make the decision I think is a good one? So it's, it, it's I mean, judges sometimes talk about not letting the tail of welfare wag the dog of capacity. But I'm sort of interested in your take on, on, on the extent to which it's, it's really legitimately possible or really possible to blind yourself when thinking about capacity system to look purely at the process of the person's decision-making ability without any idea that, well, hang on a minute, if they do have capacity and they do this, I've got a pretty good idea of what the outcome is and it may not be good. So I'm interested in your take on that. Yeah, I mean, of course, the law does distinguish very cleanly between capacity and best interest and you're not meant to consider best interest before capacity. Uh, and you can understand, given where the Mental Capacity Act is coming from, why it does that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think just sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, one has to, in a way, ask the prior question of how do you get to the capacity assessment even in the beginning, to, you know, to start with? Um, how do you even get to the point where capacity has become a question? And that usually is because someone or some group of people have expressed a concern. Um, you know, that there's some worry of some sort, um, you know, something is not working or in the way that it, that it was expected to, or um, uh, there's a sense that things are um, uh, not as they, sh as they should be. So there's a kind of concern and that then prompts the capacity assessment. But when the capacity assessment is then done, I think it is incumbent, yep, it is on the incumbent on the assessor to um, start thinking about the decision-making processes. Uh, and that is a different kind of assessment to best interest as, as, as you well know. And it, um, yeah, it, it, it requires a, a frame of mind. Yeah. And sort of thinking about frames of mind and thinking about context, what to your mind, what to you, kind of characterizes a difficult capacity assessment 
because I, I think one thing I wouldn't want to get across is the idea, well, sorry, I don't necessarily think that every single capacity assessment is difficult, but there are definitely yeah. some which feel more difficult. And I'm sort of really interested as I'm the lawyer here, as an extremely experienced clinician, an extremely experienced liaison psychiatrist and academic psychiatrist who thought about this a great deal. What is it which triggers things becoming more complex, more mucky? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's very important to say that capacity assessment is not, is not always difficult. Um, and I think a lot of capacity assessments can be done with really quite a lot of confidence quite quickly in uh, emergency or acute medical situations or in people where it's just very obvious that the state of mind that they're in is not allowing them to make a decision for themselves. That is to say that the per you know, one way of, asking, of looking at that question is to ask, it's just not reasonable to expect that person to be accountable for uh, the decision making that needs to be made. Um, and so for somebody who's in a coma, for example, or in, or in a very a very obvious confusional state, it's just not appropriate to be holding that person accountable. And, and so uh, best interest decision makers just need to, to um, you know, to think in, in best interest terms. Um, but the capacity assessments can get, can get difficult. And you know, probably the most common reason they're difficult is just that life is messy basically. Uh, and so you're just encountering a capacity assessment because stuff is messy, basically. So things can be messy, you know, across the whole, um, you know, the whole uh, piece, really, with, with capacity assessment. I mean, it can, you know, capacity assessment is basically asking, can this person make this decision for themselves at this time? So, I mean, it can be messy because it's not clear what the decision is. Uh, it can be messy because um, the legal abilities themselves, you know, the ability to understand, to use or weigh and so on, really when you press them are, are somewhat vague. Um, and it can be messy because the impairment uh, that's um, got to be brought into relationship with this decision, into a relation with this decision can be difficult to discern professionals can disagree about about what what the impairment is exactly it can change so you can just get messiness basically and uh, and that, so it's not surprising then that capacity assessment uh, can be difficult so if that's as it were the problem what's the solution because I mean one solution would be abandon this whole mental capacity idea the committee on the rights of persons with disabilities mm. or at least its previous incarnation would have said abandon this as an idea it's simply so arbitrary it's 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 illegitimate to have this as the basis on which we accept or refuse people's yes or no so i mean that might be one solution i think it's fair to say you and i wouldn't necessarily go there but if that's if that's a problem we can't as well leave people pure problem what 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 tools can we think of what tools could we suggest to make it so that we can make it more, um, I don't want to use the term objective necessarily, but more defensible in those, in the, in the muckier situations, the more messy situations. What sort, of, what sort of things can we pull into, what can we pull out of the toolbox? So I lost the connection there briefly, Alex, but I think what you're asking was, um, what can we do what, yeah. uh, to respond to um, this kind of messiness that we can be dealing with with capacity assessments? Um, 
Well, I think the first observation is not is 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 really to say that this kind of um, these sorts of difficulties affect assessments in general about important things. So capacity in that sense is no is no different from other other assessments of important matters. Um, but yeah, it is important to develop strategies for how to um, uh, how to break this down and how to get better at it. Um, and I mean, I think one of the things I would suggest is important here when you when when the capacity assessment is is messy or appears difficult is actually just not to jump into the assessment itself too quickly um, that is don't impose too quickly a kind of uh, a very kind of black and white legal frame framework for things so um, step back and allow yourself to sort of ask questions first so you know questions such as does the decision even mean does it does the decision even need to be made at this time uh, to spend some time kind of clarifying what it is exactly that uh, uh, the person is being expected to make a decision about um, to uh, you know spend some time with somebody to try to understand if, 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 if the time can be made available and often it, it can be uh, to try to understand what the nature of the decision um, making of the person is and whether what appears to be an inability is when you spend more time with them um, and then also to ask yourself questions about uh, the the mental impairments itself so to get a better understanding of what the nature and quality of that impairment is um, because that that as well is is, is something which um, uh, you know, can do with some, some, some thought about. So even if somebody is, has clearly got a mental impairment, the question is how that really is impacting on this decision. Um, that can take some, some um, time to sort through. Uh, or even if the person doesn't seem to have a mental impairment, but there's questions about their decision-making ability, um, uh, you know, is that, really because your assessment of them hasn't been sufficiently thorough and uh, that the following the further further assessment you can you can see that in fact there really is a a problem with there is a, a problem with an with an impairment here here so that you know for example there's a, a cognitive impairment that has gone unseen or that there's a mood disorder that's much actually much more profound than has been previously acknowledged um, so all of those things can be important. So I think it's just the, 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 the message really is just not to jump too, too quickly into the, um, into the kind of uh, the black and white legal um, test. Uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Uh, thank you. That's fascinating. And it, it's, re it's resonating really interestingly with a, a webinar we did the other day on remote assessments. We've not mm. talked about COVID-19 and I don't intend to, to spend time talking about it. Um, but one of the things that really came out quite strongly was in the context of remote assessments for dolls, that actually some of the best interest, in, interest assessors involved felt that they were doing a better job than they had been previously because they were being forced to spend more time preparing for the interview or the assessment, more time thinking about what exactly is the question? More time thinking about yeah. the evidence. And then more time also, I thought quite interestingly, on triangulating. 
which in a way is what you're talking about as well, which is I've got one data point here. I might be triangulating that with a data point at point B in relation to the same person, but I might also be using it that, well, they say X, Y, and Z, but actually I'm gathering evidence from other people which tell me something completely contrary. And it just struck yeah. me this was a, in, in terms of silver linings from otherwise quite a bleak cloud, this was quite an interesting aspect of, of again, what you were talking about, this time idea and the preparation that actually people recognizing that some instances, not across the board, this was allowing them to do a job that they felt more comfortable with in cases which sometimes would have been quite, on the face of it, quite complex and quite, you know, are we really sure this is a 50-50 case? Yeah. Seems to be just well, I, yeah, that's a, a very interesting. I mean, I'm, cert, I'm, I'm sure there are certain sources of information that you lose with a remote assessment, but <laughs> insofar as remote assessment provides a framework or a structure or kind of encourages that, it's likely to help. I and mean, we know from research that, that structuring a capacity assessment certainly improves um, the levels of agreement between independent raters, uh, which is you know, a good thing. And I think it generally speaking, if the structure is a good structure and encourages thought, uh, it's going to increase in, it also improves the quality of that assessment. Um, and preparing is also very important. I think, yeah, I mean, we've talked about getting clear about what the decision is and so on before you do the assessments. Um, that's very important for also working out what the relevant information is. So you can, um, you know, actually, you know, engage in a, in a discussion with somebody about what it is they need to decide uh, rather than that interaction or that communication being in itself a bit confused uh, so that's that's all that preparation is 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 vitally important the other point you you make which is quite true which is around getting other sources of information outside of the interview so that i don't for, for reasons i don't entirely understand there's been a kind of view that capacity assessment has to be like a kind of time slice and it can only be with the person in one interview uh, but it's, there's nothing in, in the law that, in, in, that suggests that that has to be true at all and any other clinical assessments aren't generally done like that anyway. So you can, you can have more than one assessment, you can draw on other sources of information from outside of the interviews to help you interpret um, whether the person can make the decision for themselves at the time. Um, so yeah, those, those forms of um, of getting evidence and triangulating evidence are uh, definitely a hugely important part of the skill of capacity assessment. I think one thing there is some of the language. We're sort of more or less out of time, but I think one of the things there is language because I think people have conflated the idea of assessment with determination. Because determination is your recording of this person has or lacks capacity for these reasons. Yeah. Assessment is the process of gathering the evidence that you need. Yeah. And I remember very vividly, I, I've always liked the way you framed it, that you keep assessing or you keep interrogating until you've got the evidence that you need. And I think That's that right. point that you yeah. don't just, it's, of course, it's decision and so time specific, but that's determination at this point in time, this person has all that capacity. It's not, I'm now doing assessment and I'm going to walk away and that's it, I've done my assessment. I just think it's very, people blinding themselves inadvertently to, to important and valuable information. Yeah, and I, I, I think that does need to be corrected in people's minds. I mean, assessments have to, of all types, have to, have to 
eventually arise, you know, result in a determination. Um, but there's nothing specific about capacity assessments that means that the whole thing is, you know, has to be determined, you know, very rapidly, uh, you know, on the basis of only certain types of, of evidence. Well, um, I'm going to plug what we do very briefly for 30 seconds. So you and I work very closely together on the Mental Health and Justice Project. You can find that. I'll put yep. the resources up on the website. You and I also co-lead the Mental Health Ethics and Law Masters at King's, which is a fantastic course because it's got the law, it's got psychiatry, and then it's got ethics to help, as it were, bridge the two. And then also you and I teach uh, capacity masterclasses, day-long masterclasses for more to do learning, which I mean, this is a sort of, as it were, a mini taster of it. So if you want more of this kind of thing, we'll show you the resources as to how you can get there. But thank you very much indeed for taking the time. Time has been the theme this morning. So thank you for taking that time, Gareth, to come to share your thoughts with us. Okay, welcome, Alex.